Today's sermon reading comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. All right, we are um, obviously in the season of Advent as Christmas is rapidly approaching us. And um, I think sometimes, at least for me, I find that it can be a bit difficult to understand uh, just what it is that we're supposed to be looking forward to with Advent. I mean, Advent is a season of waiting, but just what are we supposed to be waiting for? Um, and we asked this question last week, and I want to ask it again, because I, I think it, it's a bit hard to understand what is it that we should still be longing for when the Messiah has already come. And so this week, we're going to be looking at this, this prophecy uh, from Isaiah that talked about the coming Messiah. And, and I think what we'll find here is that there are uh, many promises in this prophecy that Jesus fulfilled here. Um, and we look back upon those and we celebrate with great joy his coming and what he accomplished. But there's also in this prophecy a number of things that are still yet to come. In other words, there was a longing for the Messiah to come. And so we look back and we celebrate the reality of his coming um, God has come to be with us. Uh, that's Christmas. That's what we celebrate. But, but there's also things here for us to continue to look forward to. I think with the very same anticipation that these folks had awaiting the Messiah the first time. Because though he's come, he's still coming yet again. And so there's still more to be longing for. And, and I think what's coming is something that we all desperately need. And, and really the, the basic theme of this passage here is... Take hope, people. A great king is about to be born. Life might look difficult today. God may seem distant, but a king is coming. Your king is coming. A great king who's going to set everything right again. And there's three aspects of this coming king that I'd like to look at together with you this morning. Um, the, the king here is promised to be a king of justice, a, a king of wisdom, um, and a very unique um, king, unlike any we've ever seen before. 
And so let's look at, at the justice, the wisdom, and the really, I guess, the identity of this king. So first of all, the justice of the king. Verse 4, it says, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And when it says that he will judge the needy, it doesn't mean he's going to bring judgment on the needy. Rather, it means he's going to bring justice for the needy. He's going to put things right. And when it says he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, it means he's going to decide on behalf of the powerless and the oppressed. He's promising to come and to be their, their advocate. And what this is talking about is a coming king who will so identify with the poor that he will defend them and protect them. He will be their advocate. He will bring justice to all those who have been oppressed. And it means that he's both going to identify with the poor and he's going to use his power to make everything right again for them. And so this is hopeful. These are great promises. I mean, who wouldn't want a king like that? But you see, up to this point, it almost sounds like he's talking about some great human king who's going to come and be maybe a great political leader and deliverer of, of Israel. Uh, maybe in modern terms, some great socialist who's going to redistribute the wealth so that the poor um, have, have equity and they're not so poor anymore. In some ways, I, it almost sounds like the promises of any other politician who claims to be um, working on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And of course, our response is, yeah, I've great. I've, I've heard that before. It never seems to happen. But then when you get to verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 in this passage, all of a sudden, these promises take on a cosmic scope, a, a sweeping nature, where he says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them, the cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. You see, all of a sudden you get to verses like this and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is saying that the coming king isn't just going to make the world a better place. He's not just going to help a few, a few poor people here and there, but he's promising to get rid of all fighting and oppression. He's promising to get rid of all disease and death. He's promising to get rid of all violence and suffering. And he's going to make everything right. Everything in this world that is broken is going to be set right again. And listen, Christmas shows us the lengths that God went to actually do this. Because how does this great king come? Well, the son of God comes as a weak human. And he's born into a poor family uh, with a tainted reputation. Uh, he grows up as a carpenter's son with no privileges and few opportunities and relative obscurity and he didn't just preach he didn't just give us some great ethical advice and principles to follow but he actually fed the hungry and he healed the lame and he raised the dead see he identified with the poor the physically poor the the morally poor the the socially poor and he brought them healing now what does all this mean let me give you two quick applications real quick first of all Christmas means that we do have to be concerned about the poor, about the oppressed, about the powerless. I mean, we've got to be concerned about what Jesus was concerned about. But, but I think as we do so, it also means that we can't just do so 
um, from the safe distance of our checkbooks. I mean, God did not commute to earth to save us. He, he identified with us in our poverty. He participated with us in our humanity. And you see, what Christmas means is it's a, really it's a call to let go of money and power and influence and comfort, uh, trying to experience heaven on earth, and to invest ourselves personally into the lives of the needy and the broken and the poor around us. And so the question, the first thing we need to see from this and ask ourselves is, are you invested in the things that God himself invests in? Are you passionate about the things that motivate him? I mean, it's a call to let go of your money, your power, your comfort, and to invest it in ways that he did. But then secondly, and I think even more personally, this aspect of Christmas is a comforting reminder and a promise that wherever you are weak today, wherever you happen to be struggling right now, whatever brokenness that you might be facing in your life, God came specifically to bring healing and hope into that chaos. See, Christmas isn't just good news that you can turn to in, in spite of your hard things. You know, don't worry about your problems, at least you have Christmas. No, Christmas itself is, is the promise that he has come to bring healing to whatever is broken in your life. That's why he came. So where is your heart broken today? Where are you experiencing suffering? The promise here is that the Messiah came specifically to bring healing and restoration to everything that is broken, everything that's less than it ought to be. And so that's the first aspect of this coming king. He came for the poor. He came for our poverty to make us rich. But then secondly, I think we also see here the wisdom of this king. Verses 2 and 3, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And you see, this is saying that this coming king is, he's coming as a wise counselor. He's able to deal wisely. And he's coming with might, which means he's, he's got the power to pull it off. See, if you think about it, for us, wisdom means being able to judge what we see with our eyes and to be able to judge what we hear with our ears. I mean, any good judge in a courtroom would instruct a jury to do exactly that, but not this king. See, he's able to see beneath the surface of appearances into true wisdom. And see, this is a theme all throughout the Bible. The wisdom of God that appears foolish to mankind. You know, take, for example, our story of the shepherds. You know, at least part of what the shepherds show us is how the wisdom of the world pales in comparison before the wisdom of God. See, salvation comes through the gospel, but it comes through the weakness of dirty, needy shepherds who knew nothing. It comes through the weakness of a baby in a feed trough. It's a reminder that God's wisdom often appears foolish to the world. Or remember what we looked at last week, that God's deliverance, he, he brings his message of deliverance first through some pagan astrologers from a foreign country. You know, these, these outsiders, the last people on earth that you would expect would even have heard about the Messiah. I mean, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians where he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? 
Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those to whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And just think about how everything that Jesus did was, was a complete affront to the wisdom of this world. I mean, he was always running away from the accolades of the crowd. Uh, he often told people that he healed, be quiet, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, in fact, let me just show you two specific ways I think that Christmas as a whole is an affront to the world's definition of wisdom and success. Uh, first of all, I think Christmas flies in the face uh, of the world's definition of success because the core Christmas message is strength through weakness, right? The, the creator, the, the designer of the universe enters into his world to rescue it, to heal everything that's broken, and yet he comes in the most unimaginable ways. Born as a human? I mean, even the religious scholars had no concept of that. Born with all the frailties and the weaknesses that humans have. Born into a, a poor family with no power, no influence, few opportunities. He was born in a, a stable, not in a palace or a synagogue. He was always running from the crowds who were trying to make him king. I mean, think about it. it if you were going to design a strategy to rescue the world from its self-imposed brokenness, would you have chosen any of the things that God did? To be born as a nobody from a nowhere place with no credentials and no power, who ran from the limelight and was killed as a criminal at 33? I mean, it all looks foolish. It looks backwards. You know, what was God thinking? I mean, that's exactly what the disciples were thinking as they stared up at Jesus hanging on the cross saying, how could anything good ever come from this? And yet even the foolishness of God makes the wisdom of the world look foolish. Just like the wisdom of the world tries to make the wisdom of God look foolish, and yet God wins every time. I mean, just look at how the backward humility of God brings you the specific kind of Savior that you can identify with. So you, you don't have this distant rescuer king off there somewhere in the distance, but he understands weakness because he's lived it. He, he knows what it's like to live in discomfort. He's been abused and, and misunderstood and, and taken advantage of. He gets what it feels like to be betrayed by your friends. And, and what seemed foolish to the world, see, it brings you just the kind of savior that you need. Jesus did everything wrong, everything backward. And it's just what we needed to have a Savior that can identify with us in our weaknesses and then has the power to overcome them. But secondly, not only does Jesus' life fly in the face of the world's definition of success, but I think Christmas also, though incredibly humble and simple, it, there's no escaping the fact that this is an incredible miracle which flies in the face of, well, you know, the world we live in. Just follow the science, right? That's the mantra of the day. Everything 
has to have a scientific explanation, and miracles can't happen. In fact, you know, just let me give you a brief history lesson. This was such a theme back in the early part of the 20th century that a lot of colleges and churches and seminaries caved to the pressure that the culture was saying that science and technology are going to be able to explain everything. And things that were once mysteries, the church simply took advantage of those mysteries to keep people under their control. And they called them miracles and mysteries and whatnot, which partly was true. And so what, what they said was, if we could just get rid of the miraculous, science will give us rational explanations for everything. And, and so we need to get rid of the supernatural. Let's just distill the ethical principles of Jesus' teaching to love one another and, and, and to have social justice and to think about the equality of all people where everybody bears his image. But let's throw away the miraculous, the, the, the virgin birth, the, the inspired authoritative word of God, the, the idea of needing to be supernaturally uh, born again. We can have an effective religion without all that stuff. And they did this because they wanted to stay relevant. They wanted people to respect them and not dismiss them or not laugh at them. And this is what is known as the birth of liberalism. And yet, I want you to think about what has happened 100 years later. All of the churches and all the denominations and all the universities that embrace these ideas are in steep, rapid decline. Uh, liberal churches without the supernatural are dying rapidly. And yet supernatural Christianity is growing like crazy. A and it's growing in places that nobody ever thought it could actually touch. I mean, 100 years ago, Africa was 5% Christian. Today, it's over 60% Christian. 100 years ago, Korea was 0% Christian. Today, it's over 40% Christian. And, and China's in the midst of the same kind of transformation right now. But because, listen, when you follow the wisdom of the world and you take out the supernatural in order to be more relevant or to keep people from laughing at you or mocking you and try to simply hang on to the ethical teachings of Jesus, what it actually does is it turns Christianity into a self improvement religion which means it only works for those who have enough opportunity and enough power and enough goodness uh, to be able to improve themselves it, it turns christianity into an elitist religion it's for the powerful but what about the poor and the powerless which frankly is most of us right what hope is there for us and you see, the message of Christmas is that God has torn down the barrier between heaven and earth. And now there's hope, there's mercy, there's power, even for the weak, even for the broken. In fact, especially for the poor. And see, the, the world always laughs at Christianity. They mock our convictions. They, they love to make fun of the gospel. You know, get with the program. Why don't you just modernize? Don't, don't be a primitive bigot who's opposed to same-sex marriage and gender fluidity or uh, someone who gets all worked up about abortion being anything more than a messy form of birth control. God is a God of love and he just accepts everybody as they are, so why can't you? And yet, in the end, God always gets the last laugh because even God's foolishness is wiser than man's greatest wisdom. And history proves this over and over and over again. You know, and even today, I think many Christians are talking as if we're heading into a season of great oppression where the, uh, against the church and things are just going to get worse and worse. 
where we may not be able to teach the exclusive claims of the gospel anymore. And it looks like things are beginning to fall apart for us. And that may very well be true, I don't know. But I, knew, I do know that Christmas tells us not to panic about it because it's always looked this way. It, it always has. God laughs at the wisdom of the world. His wisdom always triumphs in the end. I mean, don't cave to the politically correct pressures of a foolish world. There was tremendous glory in that simple manger, and almost nobody saw it. What looked foolish and weak and, and backwards was the greatest display of love the world has ever seen. And that love is still on display today. The question is, do you see it? Or are you missing it? See, the world's wisdom is always going to miss it. But the foolishness of God will always win out as the greatest wisdom we could ever imagine. And listen, if this is true, there's another implication here. And that is, it also means that you should not expect to always understand or even agree with what God is doing in your life. You know, if you're anything like me, wisdom for you might look like God giving you what your heart most wants, right? Or maybe taking away some debilitating thing that you just don't want to have or experience. Because we, we all have deep agendas for what the good life is going to look like for me. But the wisdom of God might be just the opposite for you. I mean, just look at so many of these stories in the Bible. Job wanted to, God to fix the mess that Satan had made of his life, and God says no. Or take a look at Abraham desperately wanting a son, and God says, okay, but it's going to be a while, 20 years. Or, or remember John the Baptist. I mean, this poor guy, he's rotting away in prison. He's wondering if Jesus really was the Messiah. Uh, and so he sends his disciples to find out because he knew that the Messiah had promises where all the chains of the prisoners will be released. And so I'm stuck here in prison and are you the Messiah? You're going to get me out of here. And God just leaves him there until he's beheaded. Or remember the pleas of the Apostle Paul. God, please take this miserable thorn in the flesh from me. And God says, no, something that you need. It's good for you. <laughs> because listen, if the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, then you're not going to understand everything God is up to in your life. He's going to bring all sorts of things into your life that you don't want. And there's going to be all sorts of things that you long for that he's going to say, no, you don't need that. Or maybe wait, not right now. You couldn't handle it right now. And you've got to trust that his wisdom is wiser than yours. Can, can you do that? Now, the promises of this coming king are amazing. So amazing, in fact, even to the people of Isaiah's day, that they knew that this couldn't just be some political king. I mean, this, this, this has got to be the Messiah. The promises are just too big. They're, they're too grandiose. And so let's just look at the identity of this king for a moment. In verse 1, he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So this is saying that the Messiah will come from the line of Jesse, who was David's father. In other words, he will be an offspring of King David. But then you get down to verse 10, and it says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And here Isaiah calls this king the root of Jesse. So wait a minute, what kind of king is this? who is both the root of Jesse and the shoot of Jesse. Because you see, what Isaiah is telling us about this coming king is that he's going to both be a descendant of David, but that David is also going to be descended from him. So how can it be both? 
How can he be somebody at the same time to be both the cause of this coming Messiah and the source of this coming Messiah? And there's only one possible answer. It's got to be God, who is the root of all of us. That the creator God was born into the world as a weak human being, and he came as a descendant of David. In other words, he's the unique God-man who alone has the ability to actually save us. Because listen, this is why the miracle of Christmas is such a radical category-busting thing for the world. Because, I mean, if you think about it, the, the world that we live in only understands two kinds of religion. In many ways, it's the same kind of two kinds of politics. You either have religious conservatives who are all about wrath and law and keep your life clean and be flawless, and there's going to be judgment for those who can't keep up. There's going to be blessing for good people like me who can. And it's a religion that's very black and white. There's good people like me, and, and there's bad people like them, and it's a very simple religion. Work hard, you know, be good, and God will reward you. And then you've got the liberal version of religion where it's all about love and acceptance, and God just loves and forgives everybody. He accepts them just as they are, and we need to do the same. Right? We, and we just need to let everybody decide for themselves how they want to live and act. You can't impose any of your ideas on their life. We just need to love and accept people. And again, it's a very simplistic religion. But you see, the message of Christmas comes along and it blows all of that away, which is a good thing because we desperately need a third alternative. See, the world's definitions of wisdom simply aren't working because the world's versions, whether they're conservative or liberal, are still religions of the self because they're all about you and what you have to do. It's all about your efforts which means there's no hope for the poor and the oppressed like us. These are merely religions for the elitists who have the ability, who have the power. They can be good enough. They can be accepting enough. But what about the rest of us who fail and fall short? But you see, Christmas shows us a whole new way because Jesus is both God and man. See, he's God, which means that he's not just another religious founder come to give us some principles to live by. He's, he's not just another sage to come to tell you, hey, follow this path and you can find your way to God. Jesus did not come to point the way to God, but he is God come to find you and to draw you to himself. And that's the kind of rescue that we desperately need because we can't be rescued any other way. I can't find it. But he's also fully human, which means he, he's a real human being, which means that he comes in weakness. He comes not to conquer, but to die. He comes to take on our weaknesses and our, our frailties. He can identify with us, and he bears them for us on the cross. And see, th this combination is why Christianity is so transformative. We don't just have another religion of works and law and wrath and judgment of self-salvation through being good enough nor do we have a religion that's merely one of love and acceptance where everybody is just accepted but you're stuck in your own messy brokenness but we have a religion of grace and grace is costly love i mean it's very costly because there there is wrath toward our rebellion there is judgment for our rejection of our creator. Nobody lives the way they ought to live. Nobody loves their neighbors themselves. We all deserve to be condemned for the things that we've done. And innately, we all know this. 
That's why we struggle with such guilt and, and shame. That's why we're always hiding our true selves from one another because there is wrath. There's a costly love, but Jesus came to bear it. But it's also a costly love because Jesus came not just to accept us as we are, but to pay for the rebellion that separates us from God. A rebellion that often sends us out into the world desperately trying to find something that will assure me that I'm somebody. But his payment makes us fully loved, absolutely accepted, adopted children. See, this is not an, oh, well, do better next time kind of love. This is a costly love where God comes and satisfies his own wrath. You see, conservatives have a religion of wrath without love. And liberals have a religion of love without wrath. But in Jesus, we get exactly what we need to get out of the mess that we've made of our lives. We have wrath paid through love. We need somebody to pay the cost of our selfishness and our foolishness. We need somebody to love us enough to take it on in our place. And you see, the Christmas story, it just smacks you in the face with both the humility of God that he would come into the world. I mean, why would he care so much for rebels like us? Why would he bother? And also, here's the miracle of God, to actually come as a man who could die as one of us, but also as a God who could do it as a perfect sinless sacrifice that none of us could ever pull off. And that's exactly what we need. We don't need good advice about how to live better. We don't just need forgiveness and acceptance that leaves us stuck in our brokenness. We need the wisdom of God to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. And when you see the depth of what you owe to God and the right justice of God to demand payment combined with the costly love of God that he's willing to come and pay it for you, that is what transforms the heart. That's what melts away the guilt and the shame. That's what melts away the need to perform well enough to be accepted. That, that's what melts away the constant comparisons with, with one another and how am I keeping up and how do I look next to them. It produces a love for God and it produces a love for one another because we're free from the guilt that used to own us. We're free from the shame that used to weigh us down. We're free from the need to perform well enough to either please God or to please our peer group or even to please ourselves, we're free, finally. But of course, this also convicts us because there's no way I can see this kind of costly love and just go out and live any way I please. I owe him everything. But it does take the pressure off because whether I live well or whether I live poorly, it's still all about what Jesus did, not about what I do. And see, this, this is a faith that's for everybody. Not just for those who are good enough, not just for those who have enough opportunity, not just for those who have the ability to keep up, but this is a faith for the poor, for the oppressed, for the broken, for the wicked, for the self-centered, for those who can't escape themselves and their own selfish desires. And it's a faith that works because it actually pays for our debt. It eliminates our guilt and shame. It's paid in full. This is a faith that you and I need because it gives us exactly what we most desperately need, a high standard of morality without any of the pressure. Because though God demands absolute holiness, Jesus did it for me. And I can now just relax and pursue the process of becoming like him out of love because I want to. 
not for the pressure to try to earn being accepted. Listen, this is the wonderful foolishness of God. What are you placing your hopes in today? Because listen, if it's anything besides God, you are listening to the wisdom of the world. And whatever it is it tells you to pursue, it's going to disappoint you along the way. I mean, you know this. It always has. And it will desert you in the end. But you see, Christmas means that the wisdom of God has been revealed, that he's come to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. And to the degree that you can embrace this costly love, certainly you might look like a fool to the world, but the gospel says that's what you got to do. You've got to become a fool first in order to truly be wise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we're just so thankful that you didn't come to earth to leave us cute stories to tell our kids every year. Um, it, 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 you didn't come just to give us some principles to try to instill um, as if somehow uh, moral values could transform our hearts, but you gave us your son who lived and died in our place so that what we owe to you has been paid in full and that our brokenness now is beauty in your eyes. Lord, we long for this and it's hard for us at times to believe it's true. But I pray that you'd help for us to live in the light of what Christmas tells us, that we are your delight, that we are your treasure, that you went to incredible lengths to pay for our sin and to make us your own. And I pray, Lord, that you would help for us to be able to rest in that and to enjoy that as we celebrate Christmas together this year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.